You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning, everybody. If we haven't met yet, my name is Bob Carvella. I serve as one of the elders here at Liberty Church, and uh, I also serve as associate pastor of congregational care. And so just let me add my welcome to you all this morning. Really glad you're, you're here with us to worship God. Our journey, journey through the book of Acts that we began back in January is rapidly coming to a close. We have about four more Sundays after today. Uh, so this morning we're going to be looking at Acts uh, 24. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, you can find that on page 933. And as you're turning there, let me just say that we had a really great uh, men's retreat this past weekend up at Camp Hebron. About 32 men from Liberty joined from 50 other men from three other area Acts 29 churches. Uh, We praised God. We had uh, good challenging talks on how to fear less and trust God more. Uh, We ate a lot of good food, a lot of good food, um, and we had a lot of fellowship and fun, Uh, so much so that some of the men are still there. Um, They're having a worship service there this morning to cap off the retreat. They promised they would come back later this afternoon. Um, So for those of you, especially the wives and mothers, especially the mothers who uh, pulled extra duty so that the guys could go, uh, thank you for that. And uh, we pray that you will uh, see much fruit from this weekend in the days and weeks to come. Courtroom dramas. They've been a staple of pop culture for as long as anyone can remember. From classic movies like Witness for the Prosecution, To Kill a Mockingbird, or A Few Good Men. To TV shows, from Perry Mason to L.A. Law and Law and Order. Courtroom dramas have captured our imagination over the years. But it's not just pop culture. According to that great source of accurate information, Wikipedia, in the 20th century, there were at least 28 trials that were considered the trial of the century. From the Scopes Monkey trial, to the Nuremberg trials after World War II, to the Manson family trials, and the trial of O.J. Simpson. And already in the 21st century, there are 10 trials that have attained trial of the century status. We're only 20 years into the century. Uh, Most recently, the trial of Derek Chauvin. As we continue on through the book of Acts this morning, we come to chapter 24, and another in a series of courtroom scenes involving Paul. And while at first blush, it may seem like not a whole lot happens in this chapter, nothing for sure that will qualify it as a trial of the first century. From an eternal perspective, there is much we can learn from this account. So turn with me now to this book that we love and follow along as I read Acts 24, starting at verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, 
Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in this charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Continuing on with verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, "'Go away for the present.'" When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, be present in this moment with the one who speaks and with all who listen, that we would proclaim your greatness and power, 
that we would declare your love and grace and that we would give you all glory and honor and praise. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. As I mentioned, it initially appears that Acts 24 is nothing more than narrative that moves the story along. The first portion of the chapter is the trial, which reads almost like a preliminary hearing. Charges are brought against Paul, Paul gives a brief defense, and he is bound over by Felix, the governor of Caesarea, for two years of house arrest, pending further action. But if we look a bit closer, there's really much we can learn from Paul here. And in fact, though it seems as if there is only one trial, in reality, there are two. So we'll be looking at these two trials today from the vantage point of the prosecution. In the first trial, we'll be looking at the prosecution of Paul. And then in the second trial, we'll explore the prosecution by Paul. First, the prosecution of Paul. And it's helpful here to become better acquainted with a couple of the players in this drama. First, there is Tertullus. Tertullus is a Jewish attorney who is basically a hired gun by the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of the Jews, whom Paul appeared before during his second trial in Acts 23. They hired Tertullus to be the prosecuting attorney in this trial before Felix. I picture Tertullus as being that, that guy you would see on billboards or on the back of a telephone book with his arms crossed or pointing at you and saying, we mean business. He's that guy. And as you can see, he starts out his argument before Felix with over-the-top flattery for the governor. So back in my former life, I worked in labor relations for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, representing the Commonwealth in its dealings with various labor unions that represent state employees. I sat on management side of that relationship, and occasionally in that role, I would represent a Commonwealth agency at an arbitration hearing, which would be held when one of the unions believed that a state agency unjustly disciplined an employee or in some other way violated the terms of the contract. These arbitration hearings would involve me acting as sort of a quasi-attorney, the union, who would be represented by a real attorney, and a neutral arbitrator who was there to hear the evidence and make a decision. And over the years, I learned that there were a couple of tip-offs that the union uh, would employ to if they thought they did not have a particularly strong case. One would be if they yelled a lot. Uh, The rule of thumb seemed to be that the louder the advocate was in presenting their case, the weaker their case actually was. And that seemed to hold true most of the time. Um, The other tip-off was if the union attorney uh, took the opportunity before the case or during breaks to flatter the arbitrator. Oh, I really like that tie you're wearing today. Or, oh, I read your opinion in such and such a case. It was brilliant. On and on they'd go, hoping that maybe by flattering the arbitrator, uh, they would get the arbitrator to lean their way when the arbitrator was making their decision. Now, before I go too far in laying all of that at the uh, feet of the union, there were more than a few Commonwealth advocates who would employ those tactics as well. 
And so it seems that Tertullus took a page out of that playbook here as he addresses Felix. He apparently knew that he did not have much of a case against Paul, so he resorts to flattery. Look at verses 2 and 3. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Yeesh! I mean, it's one thing to be respectful, but this, there was nothing the Jews hated more than the fact that they were an occupied nation by a foreign power. It was one of the fundamental ways that they misunderstood the mission of Jesus. They thought his kingdom was one that would kick out Rome, restore Israel to the Jews, and and put things back to the way they were supposed to be. Yet here was Tertullus gushing with praise for Felix for the peace that he had brought to the land. This is all the more nauseating when we understand who Governor Felix was. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that Felix was born into slavery but eventually obtained his freedom and was appointed governor of Caesarea by the emperor Claudius. Felix was known by historians for the brutal manner in which he would put down riots by the Jews when they would stand up against Rome. In fact, he was so brutal that when the emperor Claudius died and a new emperor came to power, that new emperor recalled him to Rome and ultimately put Felix on trial for his atrocities. That emperor was none other than Nero himself the great persecutor of the early Christian church. Felix was too brutal even for Nero's blood. Yet here is Tertullus praising Felix for the peace he imposed on the land. Once Tertullus gets done with all of his bluster, the rest of the trial goes forward fairly simply. Let's just walk through it briefly. Tertullus starts out with a little name-calling, calling Paul a plague. At one time, we could only imagine the impact that a plague could have on a culture, but we've lived it now for 18 months. Tertullus then goes on to make three specific charges against Paul, with no evidence, by the way. That Paul stirs things up and causes riots, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he tried to profane the Jewish temple. Paul gets the nod from Felix, and he makes his defense. Notice that in this setting, he doesn't give a speech like he tried to do during his first two trials. Perhaps he learned from those experiences that to try to give a full defense would result in either him getting interrupted or getting punched in the face. So he succinctly responds to each charge. He basically says, look, I was only there in Jerusalem for 12 days. I didn't have time to do any of the things that they are accusing me of. I didn't go to the temple to preach or teach. I only went there to purify myself. As for stirring up riots, the only witnesses that they could call who would maybe have anything to say about that are some Jews from Asia. That's a reference to the riots in Ephesus back in Acts chapter 19. And those witnesses, they're not here. And as for being a ringleader of a sect, it's quite the opposite. 
I worship the God of our fathers and follow the law and the prophets all the way to Jesus. If I disrupted the peace at all, it was when I said I believed in the resurrection during my second trial, something that the Pharisees themselves, who make up half the Sanhedrin, believe as well. And that's it. All pretty straightforward. But at a deeper level, behind Tertullus' flattery and the sham of a trial that this was, was the real charge against Paul. That Paul was a threat to the peace that Felix had effectively, brutally imposed on the land. The Pax Romana, as it was known. A peace that comes when all opposition has been beaten into submission and can no longer resist. What Tertullus is basically telling Felix is this. Look, you may think that you have brought peace to this land, but let me tell you, all the dissension, all the riots that happen wherever Paul goes, they're coming your way. And the only way to stop it is to stop Paul. And in that sense, Tertullus is absolutely right. The peace that Paul proclaims, the peace that comes through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, is indeed a threat, not just to the Pax Romana, but to the peace this world offers. For the best peace this world can offer are brief and periodic absences of conflict. The peace that Paul proclaims, the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, is so much more than that. Throughout Paul's letters, you see his emphasis on peace. He begins every one of his letters with the phrase, grace and peace to you. It's a consistent theme throughout his letters. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul lays out four dimensions of God's peace. It's purpose, it's personal and interpersonal implications, it's priority, and it's power. We don't have time to fully develop all of those dimensions this morning, but let me highlight them briefly. First, the purpose of peace. In Ephesians 1, Paul shows us that Christ's ultimate purpose is to bring together all things under his leadership, that the original harmony of all creation, which was disrupted by the fall, would be restored. When Christ reigns, peace reigns. Second, in Ephesians 2, Paul addresses the personal and interpersonal implications of Christ's peacemaking work. This is the peace that we celebrate each Sunday when we pass the peace with one another. The reality that because we are at peace with God, we can be at peace with one another because Jesus himself is our peace. He proclaims peace and he makes peace. Paul then goes on in chapter 4 to point out the priority of peacemaking among Christ's followers. He exhorts us as his people to make every effort, every effort, to keep and maintain unity through the bond of peace. And then lastly, in Ephesians 6, Paul describes the power of peacemaking. In this great chapter regarding the armor of God that many of us know well. And one piece of that armor are the shoes, as it were, of peace. Here we see both the defensive and offensive nature of the gospel that Pastor Matt has talked about in recent weeks as we've gone through the book of Acts. Gospel shoes are defensive. 
They enable us to remain stable, to withhold or withstand the attacks of Satan so that we can experience God's peace even in the midst of those attacks. And then we also can go on the offense, not with weapons made with human hands, not with rhetorical eloquence or human wisdom, but with the gospel of peace. So the peace that Paul proclaims goes far beyond the mere absence of conflict, but it is a peace, a comprehensive peace that comes from God restoring all things to the way he intended them to be with Christ himself reigning as king. And Satan, the king of this world, hates that and will continue to resist it at all costs. And though Satan and his kingdom were defeated at the cross, that doesn't mean they've stopped fighting and resisting his kingdom. They continue to wage war. And one of their most frequent tactics over the years has been to persecute the church, to physically intimidate and arrest and torture and even kill God's people. We see it throughout Scripture. The killing of babies in Exodus. The killing of prophets throughout the Old Testament. The killing of babies by Herod to try to snuff out Jesus. And finally, the killing of Jesus himself. And in Acts, we've seen the killing of Stephen and the killing of James. And it continues to this day. The month of November is set aside each year as a month of prayer for the persecuted church. And this year, Liberty plans to participate in that through a daily prayer guide from Radical, an organization committed to supporting and praying for persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, as well as nations that are particularly cold and indifferent towards the gospel. The guides are available this morning back at the Welcome Center, and an electronic form will go out in our weekly newsletter. Please, please prayerfully consider kneeling before the throne of God on behalf of our brothers and sisters around the world, not just through the month of November, but make it a regular rhythm of your prayer life. But it's not just the world that resists the advance of the gospel. It's us as well. Every sin that we commit is an act of rebellion against the King of glory. Every opportunity God gives us to say a word of grace or extend his mercy that we pass up is an act of mutiny, an act of revolt against his peace. And if we're honest, for many of us, we really don't want God to disrupt the peace of our lives. We're happy to have him near when we are going through difficult times, but otherwise we would just as soon him leave us alone and let us live our lives. But praise be to God. He loves us too much to leave us there. Jesus' grace is sufficient to subdue our rebellion, to forgive us for our sins, to cleanse us, and to continue to mold and shape us in his image. And yes, to continue to use us to proclaim his present and future kingdom. Where are you this morning? Are there areas of your life where you continue to resist God's presence and stiff arm his true peace that you want to retain as your own? Or are you open to allowing the gospel to transform and fully renew your heart and mind so that you view your life and the world in an entirely new way through the power of the risen Jesus Christ? 
the Prince of Peace. So that's the prosecution of Paul. Let's turn now to the prosecution by Paul. So the hearing ends, and Felix decides, well, he doesn't. As a favor to the Jews, as a way to keep the peace, and as we see in verse verse 26, maybe as a way to make a fast buck. He holds Paul, supposedly until the commander Lysias comes, basically keeping him under house arrest. We met Lysias or Claudius Lysias, or Claudius Lysias back in Acts 23. He was the commander who heard about the plot against Paul's life and sent Paul to Felix. Apparently, Lysias was directionally challenged or his GPS didn't work uh, because Paul remained there under Felix's watchful eye for two years. And this sets the stage for the second trial we see in Acts as Paul, Acts 24, as Paul turns the tables and becomes the prosecutor with Felix himself on trial. We read in verse 22 that Felix is described as having a more accurate knowledge of the way. And he may well have gotten that from a new character that enters the scene, his wife Drusilla. As a comedian of my day, Rodney Dangerfield may have said, she's no bargain either. Her great-grandfather, Herod the Great, king when Jesus was born and murderer of all boy babies under two years old in Bethlehem. Her grandfather, Herod Agrippa, killer of John the Baptist and mocker of Jesus before his crucifixion. Her father, Agrippa II, who we met in Acts 12, killer of the apostle James. But through all of that, And through her Jewish background as well, she likely developed at least a working knowledge of the way and passed that on to Felix. So they call Paul to listen to him about faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps it was for entertainment. Perhaps it was for sport. Perhaps, like her great-grandfather, Herod the Great, when he called Jesus to appear before him, he hoped to see a miracle, maybe some sort of magic trick. But Paul, through the Spirit, had other ideas and instead acted as prosecutor before Felix and Drusilla. Just as charges and accusations were made against Paul, so now Paul brings charges and accusations against Felix. And he focuses on three areas, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. The exact three charges that Governor Felix needed to be confronted with. First, righteousness. As we mentioned earlier, Felix was a brutal governor. So brutal, in fact, that he was recalled to Rome by Nero and ultimately put on trial for the cruelty and corruption of his reign as governor. He was found guilty, and he would have been sentenced to death if not for the intervention of his brother, who was a friend of Nero's. Paul went right to the heart of who Felix was as a ruler and as a man. Paul then turned to self-control, and here again there was ample opportunity for Paul to make his point. Felix was already married when he first met Drusilla, who historians describe as being very beautiful. But he divorced his wife to marry Drusilla, who, by the way, was also already married at the time. 
In both his public and private life, Felix was a man who saw what he wanted and took it. And so Paul addressed that area of his life as well. Paul then moved to the judgment to come, concluding his presentation of Felix by placing the ruler of Caesarea in front of the ruler of heaven and earth, the one who has the power and authority to welcome his children to the glories of heaven and to condemn his foes to the horrors of hell. And Felix quickly became alarmed. Some uh, translations say he became frightened, and he sent Paul away. How about you? Where do you stand this morning in the areas of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come? If you are listening this morning and you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, listen to Paul's words, not as if they were directed to a Roman governor 2,000 years ago, but as if they were directed to you today. First, righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, experts in the scriptures and meticulous keepers of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I can tell you with absolute certainty, based on that standard, I will never enter the kingdom. Neither will you. Neither will any of us. Our sin, our violation of God's law, or our failure to obey all that He commands makes us unrighteous in God's eyes. We can try to convince ourselves that we are righteous enough As Bob Thune says in his book, The Gospel-Centered Life, we can pretend that God's standard is actually something that we can attain. Or we can perform harder, try harder, do better, thinking that our performance will earn us a ticket to heaven. But the Bible says it clearly. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. So how can I, how can you, How can any of us enter the kingdom of God? Only through Christ. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only way our righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, the only way that our righteousness can be acceptable to God is to receive the righteousness of Christ. Next, self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, both an evidence and a result of receiving Jesus. Our tendency is to think of self-control in terms of willpower, of forcing ourselves to make it. But there's a reason why most New Year's resolutions are long forgotten by Groundhog Day. We lack the self-control that Paul is talking about here. A self-control to turn away from sin and turn to God. And the problem is, I think, that we tend to focus on the control part of the word, But the real key to self-control is the first part, the self. In Galatians 3.9, we are called to put off our old self and to put on the new self that we are and can be if we receive Jesus into our life. When the love of Christ controls us, when we embrace the truth that he is truly sovereign 
and that God has left nothing outside of his control. We can rest in the freedom that we need not muster our own strength to exercise self-control, but we can find strength in the strength of another. As Paul writes to us in Titus 2, in the person of Jesus, the grace of God has, been, has, has appeared, training us not just to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Friends, the only way you will ever experience true self-control is to stop trying and trying and trying again to bring your sinful desires and passions under your own control. The truth is, you and I cannot do that. We cannot control our lives on our own. Find your rest. Find your true self-control under the control of Christ by the power of His Spirit. And lastly, as Paul said to Felix, there really is a judgment day to come. A day when, as we read in the Apostles' Creed, when Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead. What will you say on that day? You know, sometimes when we receive communion here on a Sunday morning, and maybe there's a line, and I'm in the back of the line, inching my way forward, uh, I imagine myself not being in a line for communion, but being a line in being in a line in heaven, uh, knowing that I will have to give an account for my life, knowing that I will have to answer the question, "Why should God let me into His heaven? What could I say? What could any of us say? Could I stand before God and say that my righteousness qualifies me to be admitted into heaven? No. Have I exercised the kind of self-control that God requires and demands? Not even close. In fact, I don't even have a single day that I could point to and say, God, forget about all the other days in my life. Judge, judge me on this one day. I don't have one day like that. Neither do you. None of us do. But as I get to the front of the line, I don't see judgment and condemnation. I see bread. I see wine. I see the body of Jesus broken for my sin. I see the blood of Christ shed for my iniquities. I see the price that needed to be paid for my sin, and I see that in Christ that price has been fully paid for all who place their faith and trust in Jesus. If you do not know Jesus, I urge you this morning, please rest in his righteousness. Trust in Jesus, the only true source of self-control. None of us knows when it will be our day to stand before his throne. Please, don't delay. Let this be the day that you receive Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Father, would you fill us with your Spirit that we would truly rest in the righteousness of Jesus, that we would find our true self-control under the control of Christ, that we would know and experience your presence 
and your peace. And Lord, would you move by the power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of any who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that this would be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.